Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book of your Bible. I'm going to begin on verse 1 and I will end on verse 17. So Exodus 20 verses 17 or verses 1 to 17. Here are the Ten Commandments. I wonder if you know the Ten Commandments by heart or could recite them, at least the ideas of them. I'm not going to quiz you now, though if I see you in the hall, I might. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, because Yahweh will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. You must not do any work, you your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may have a long life in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your word. Very clear. It's not hard to understand what these commands are saying generally. They're straightforward and succinct. And so, Father, we are praying this morning that you would incline our heart, turn our hearts to your word and not to material gain. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and that you would lead us in your ways, that we would walk in your ways with all of our heart. We need your help for that, Father, not just to see your ways, but power to walk in your ways, because walking in your ways means difficulty. It means dying to ourselves. It means taking risks that we, quite frankly, do not want to take because they are inconvenient and sometimes life-threatening. Father, break us out of our comfort. Show us your glory that we will let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, your truth abides still. Your kingdom is forever. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. You have told us that you are with us wherever we go as we seek to make disciples. And Lord Jesus, we need your presence and power now. For apart from you, I cannot preach in any way that would be edifying or life-giving, because I cannot give life on my own. And we cannot hear your word with faith and joy and repentance and gladness if your spirit does not work amongst us. So we pray for his help now as very needy, dependent Children, even babies, dependent on your grace. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 
we sang, This is my Father's world, oh let me never forget, that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Wrong can be seen in this world to be really strong, but God still rules our world. Amen? He rules our country, He rules our city, He rules our state, He rules this world. And then we, re- we sang, This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be won. We're not fighting a battle that we will not win. The, the victory is guaranteed. Not every battle is victorious, but the war is guaranteed. We will win the war because Christ has already won the war on the cross and resurrection. But there is still a battle to be fought. There are still souls to be saved. There's still sin in our own lives to be killed. There's still growth for our church to have. There's still good in this world for us to do. And therefore, we need to focus on what God would have us this morning. Last week, we talked about racism and the birth of racism. This week, we are talking about abortion. And that's not a typical thing in our church. If you're visiting for the first or second time, we don't normally just take up topics and preach on them. We normally preach through a book of the Bible. We're going through the gospel according to Mark. We've been taking a break for this series, just these two weeks, because there are evils going on in our world and in our country that we cannot be silent about. And this is not about politics. This is not about Republican Party or Democratic Party. This is not about politics primarily. This is about God's word and obeying Christ. Okay? And we don't want politics to drive theology and Bible reading. That's the wrong way to read the Bible. You read the Bible and let the Bible say what it says. And then you line up your life according to what the Bible says, whatever that means. And so here, in our, we are part of a, a family of churches, a convention of churches called the Southern Baptist Convention. We have 50,000 churches in our convention. And we have a position statement in our convention and it, on sanctity of life, and it goes like this. Procreation is a gift from God. A precious trust reserved for marriage. At the moment of conception, a new being enters the universe. A human being, a being created in God's image. This human being deserves our protection, whatever the circumstances of conception. Now that's a general... Um, position statement of the convention. It's not really enforced. But we have in our church, aligned with the Baptist faith and message, what we believe here as a church family here. If you're a member of this church, you affirm this as our statement of faith. We should speak on... This is what it says. Quote, We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in a spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and His truth. The front line of the battle is not the church, not the church meeting. The front line of the battle is in your neighborhood and in your workplaces. And the battle is primarily for the gospel, to spread the gospel. But also in this battlefield on the front lines of your neighborhood and work and school and the interactions you have with those who don't know Christ, in in, in those places, you're also battling for other ideas. The sanctity of human life being one of them, opposing racism, like what we talked about last week, being another one of them. We want to work for the good of our neighbors. We want to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, which means we can't be silent. We can't be silent. We must think through these things and engage these things. In our own nation, the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We want life, we want happiness, and we want that for all men, not just Christians, not just our church. We want that for all men. Since Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade in 1973, January 22nd, 
1973, there have been, as of December 31st, 2015, 57,762,169 abortions in the United States. 57 million, almost 58 million actually, closer to 58 million than 57 million aborted since 1973. Estimates that are one out of three American women will have an abortion by the age of 45. Every 20 seconds in America, a baby is torn from its mother's womb and discarded. About 1.4 million unborn babies are aborted every year in the U.S. 1.4 million. We're, we're quickly reaching 60 million babies. 1.4 million here in our country, not to mention 40 to 60 million worldwide being aborted every year. 70% of those claiming to be Christian, that's Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, anyone claiming to be Christian, 70% of, of those claiming to be Christian have had, are, are those who've had the abortion. So of the 100% in America, 70% of them have some Christian affiliation. And this is a problem, not only in the world, then it is a problem in the church. And not just churches in general. You say, well, PJ, not all those churches believe the Bible as their sole authority. True. But one out of five abortions in the U.S. today are from women who attend Bible-believing churches. Churches like ours. Churches like those in our convention. One out of five women, that's 20% of all women getting abortions, are in Bible-believing churches who are preaching the Word of God, presumably, every week. So this is not just a problem for the world. It's not just a problem for the apostate church that isn't teaching God's Word. This is a problem for Christians in churches that are preaching the Word of God, that are professing to believe that the Word of God is the sole and final authority of life, faith, and practice. So many have said it's foolish to think that abortion can be eliminated from America before it's eliminated from the church. And that's right. If you're going to start somewhere, we've got to start with the church. So what is the solution? What does God want us to do? What does He want us to know? I really have... have there's four points to this message. They're not four tightly compartmentalized points, but I'll, I'll just say them. Um, four things I want to say. Okay, Number one, do not murder. That was Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not murder. Do not murder. Now, what is murder? Exodus 20, 13. Murder is not just killing someone. It's taking innocent life. Okay, and what, what do I mean by that? There's, so there's war. There are executions. If, you're, if you work for a state where they have the, the death penalty and your, ex, your, your job is to is to execute the person, that would be killing a human life, but that's not an innocent human life in that regard. If you remember the story of Samuel and Saul, Saul was commanded to wipe out all the Amalekites because of their sin against God, and Saul did not kill Agag, the king. The king of Israel did not kill the king of the Amalekites, Agag. When Samuel the prophet heard about it, he said, why didn't you obey God's command? He said, I, I obeyed God's command. And he says, well, why is Agag still here? So you know what Samuel did? He took out a sword, and it says he hacked Agag to pieces. That was the And that wasn't unjust. That was the judgment of God through the government, you know, executing someone with a death penalty, basically. Genesis 9. Turn to Genesis 9. We're going to be all over the Bible today. To get this concept down, turn to Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. It says this, I will require the life of every animal, this is God talking to Noah after the flood, as they're out of the ark, I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood shall, will be shed by man. Why? For God made man in his image. This is God telling Noah that if an animal kills a human, kill the animal. If a human kills another human, he deserves 
death. Because humans are made in God's image. You don't take killing humans lightly. You might step on an ant. Sometimes we have crickets here in our halls. I'll step on them when I see them. Feel no guilt, no remorse. There's nothing wrong with that. Sorry if you love crickets. Protect them then. You're welcome to protect them and catch them. You know, but if I see them, I'm killing them here in the building. Feel no guilt about that. Killing humans, that's a different story altogether, right? Killing human, killing babies, killing any human at any age is, is a problem. That's a big problem because humans are made in God's image. Crickets are not. And therefore, we need to take this command seriously. Do not murder. Look at Romans 13. Go to Romans chapter 13. I want to distinguish murder from just penalty and, and execution. Again, I'm not here necessarily, though in, by implication maybe I'm arguing for capital punishment. That's not, my, that's not the discussion here right now. But Romans 13 verses 1 through 5 talks about the goodness of government. I know that everyone, whether Democrat or Republican, have problems with the government. Things they don't like. But you know what? Government is still a blessing on the whole. And Romans 13 tells us to submit to the government. Look at Romans 13, verse 1. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from who? From God. And those that exist are instituted by God. That doesn't mean governments can't do wrong, but they're still set up by God. Verse 2. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose God's command, or and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. What is verse 3 saying? Do you want to drive with peace? Don't speed. And you don't have to worry about cops, right? The only reason you worry about cops is because you're speeding. Right? If you, did, if you never speed, and you see a cop, you don't care. Hey, there's a cop. That's cool, right? But it's not cool when you're speeding. And so verse 3 is saying, do you want to be unafraid? Do what's good. Just obey the law and you don't worry. You disobey the law, then they become the enemy, right? But they're not really the enemy. You're the one disobeying the law. But that's not... Now go to verse 4. For government is God's servant for your what? Government is God's servant for whose good? For our good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the what? What does the government carry? The sword, for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Why do, why do governments have jails? Why do governments have the sword to execute? Because it brings judgment and wrath, penalty, for those who do wrong. So, we're not saying that it's always wrong to execute. There is just killing for just or righteous reasons. Murder is killing for unrighteous reasons. Murder is killing people who are innocent. Now, everyone should agree with that in America. Murder is wrong, right? That's not debated. Here's the debate. Is, is abortion murder? And so the question we have to answer is, are unborn babies living humans? Are unborn, human, are unborn babies living humans? Are fetuses, let's use their terminology for a second, are fetuses... Humans Are they persons? Well, let's go to the Bible and then we'll say something from science. From the Bible, I'll just quote some verses here. In, in Genesis 25, verse 22, Jacob and Esau are in Rebekah's womb. Some of you are doing your January Bible reading, so you're going through the book of Genesis, right? Um, there's twins in the womb of Rebekah and they're fighting with each other. And the word there is babies are fighting. They're unborn and it's, they're called babies, and that word babies in Genesis 25, 22, is also the same word babies for born babies. So what does the Bible consider unborn fetuses in the womb? Babies. Just like born babies. Hosea 12, 3 says, In the womb, Jacob grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. Again, considering unborn babies in the womb, though they're younger and they're smaller, they are still humans. In the New Testament, we have the story of John the Baptist and Jesus. Just turn to the book of Luke. If you're in Romans, just go to the left of your Bible. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 2. 
Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, verse 12. You have the word here. This is speaking of a born baby, but you have the word in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in snuggly cloth and lying in a feeding trough. This is speaking of Jesus' birth. In verse 16, the shepherds went to see the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. Now compare that word baby with Luke 1. Go to Luke 1. Look at Luke 1, 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... What happened? What happened when Mary, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting? The baby leaped where? Inside the womb. This is an unborn baby, and it's called the same word as in Luke 2, baby. This is speaking of John the Baptist. Okay, if you go to verse 44, you have the same word there. The point here is that the baby in Luke 2, Jesus, the unborn baby in Luke 1, John the Baptist, are both called the same biblical word for baby. In other words, whether you're born or unborn, you are still the same status. Baby. So, if it's okay to kill a two-month-old born baby, then it's okay to kill a two-month uh, two premature baby still in the womb. If it's not okay to kill a two-month baby who's born, my daughter is two months, our youngest. If it's not okay to kill my baby, then it's not okay to kill a six-month-old baby in the womb. Ezra is maybe a month away, right? Aaron and Pam's baby. So if it's not okay to kill my baby, it's not okay to kill their baby either. Because it's a baby according to the Bible. When did the eternal Son of God become a man? This is the, the and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. When did God, the Son, Jesus, become a man? When he was conceived. When he was in the womb, before he was born. Okay. Even if you don't say, well, conception, I think that's clearly the scientific answer. But clearly when he wasn't even yet born and, you know, the seven... Well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here a second. Let me go to the science and then we'll, we'll go on. The point here is that in the Bible, an unborn baby is still a baby and it's still a human. Now, that's the Bible. If you're not a Christian here, you're saying, PJ, I don't believe in the Bible. Okay. Let me read to you from Randy Alcorn's book, Why Pro-Life some scientific descriptions of the baby developing in the womb. Between five and nine days after conception, the newborn person, or the new person, burrows into the womb's wall for safety and nourishment. Already his or her gender can be determined by scientific means. Five to nine days after conception. By 14 days, the child produces a hormone that suppresses the mother's menstrual period. It will be two more weeks before, the, before clearly human features are discernible, and three more before they're obvious. Still, he is a full-fledged member of the human race. At conception, the unborn doesn't appear human to us who are used to judging humanity by appearance. Nevertheless, in the objective scientific sense, he is every bit as human as any other child or adult. He looks like a human being ought to look at his stage of development. That's how human beings look. That's how you looked when you were at that stage of development. At 18 days... After conception, the heart is forming and the eyes start to develop. By 21 days, the heart is pumping blood throughout the body. Heartbeat, 21 days. By 28 days, the unborn has budding arms and legs. By 30 days, she has a brain and has multiplied in size 10,000 times in 30 days. By 35 days, her mouth, ears, and nose are taking shape. By 40 days, the preborn child's brain waves can be recorded, and her heartbeat, which began three weeks earlier, can already be detected by an ultrasonic stethoscope. By 42 days, her skeleton is formed, and her brain is controlling the movement of muscles and organs. No matter how he or she looks, a child is a child. And always, abortion terminates that child's life. The earliest means to cause abortion including, I might mispronounce this, Mifeprestone, RU486, and all abortion pills are too late to avoid taking a life. A lot of abortion pills destroy conception. And therefore, they destroy human life. 
So scientifically, even if you don't want to say at conception, the heartbeat is at 21 days. You want to say 21 days then? The point here is, if you don't believe that a child or that a human becomes a human at conception, you have to answer the question, when does a child become a human? You got to answer that question. When is a fetus a human? If you're not, if, if you don't, if you don't believe that scientifically it's conception, fine. Give me your answer. One president, um, one, you know, a few years ago, one president said it was above his, his pay grade to answer that question. One, one um, candidate for election. And, and there's, Avoiding the question doesn't avoid the issue. You can't just avoid the question. So let me give you four, 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 um, four letters here just to give you some handles to think about discussing this with other people. The four letters I'll give you is, spells the word SLED. Okay, S-L-E-D, SLED. Size, level of development, environment, and dependence. Does size determine human life and human value? So can we kill the two-month-old because she's smaller than us adults? Is that okay? No. Okay, so size doesn't determine value. Well, what's L? L is level of development. Well, they're not as developed yet, and so therefore it's okay to kill them. Well, again, a one-month-old is not as developed as an 18-year-old. A nine-year-old, my son here is not as developed as a 21-year-old. So is he less valuable as a human because he's nine years old? Okay, level of development is not a good argument for how you determine the value or reality of human life. That's SL. Next letter? E. Environment. Well, it's in the womb. And so if the baby's in the womb, it's okay. If the baby's out of the womb, then it's not okay. As if where you are determines your value. If a man walks on the moon, is he, is he less valuable because he's not on planet Earth? Or we were saying, well, out of sight, out of mind, out of mind. Do you remember the miners who got stuck in South America? Was it South America? And they're stuck there for several, was it 40 days or, or longer? Where, you know, they're mining and then the whole thing collapsed? And you had miners stuck underground? Oh, well, their environment makes them less valuable. Because they're stuck so many feet underground. Who cares about their life, right? Wrong. Everyone immediately sympathized with the families who had loved ones underground. Environment doesn't determine human value. If you move from the womb seven inches down the birth canal, all of a sudden you become human because you move seven inches? That doesn't make sense. Environment doesn't make sense. Then the last one, S-L-E-D, dependence. Well, in the womb, a baby is completely dependent on the mother. And that's true. There's an umbilical cord attached, right? Well, does that mean if they're dependent, then they are less human? A one-month-old is still very dependent on their mother, aren't they? What about the end of life when you're in a nursing home and you need 24-7 care? Aren't you dependent on the care of others? Does that mean at the end of life you can just discard or, or belittle human dignity because of age? No. Dependence does not determine human life or human value. It makes no sense to belittle and and um, to belittle life in those ways. So, conclusion: killing or not killing, aborting babies is murder because they're innocent, right? They didn't commit any crimes. Even in the cases of rape, which we could talk about that later. I don't have time to get into every issue here. Even in the cases of rape, the rapist deserves punishment, not the baby. Right? And so, so even now we, we can talk about those later, but the point here is when you kill someone who's innocent, that's what murder is. And I told you last year, I'll tell you again, the abortion process is just very gruesome and you should be aware of it. Do you know how babies are aborted? At least at the second trimester, they dilate the woman for two days, open up the birth canal enough, stick a clamp in there, start pressing on different limbs and pulling out the limbs. So they're detaching first the limbs, then you pull out the rest of their body, then the head, depending on the size, you have to crush it first inside the womb with the clamps. Then you pull it out. Then you have to reassemble the baby on, on you know, right there so that you make sure that you got every part. You can't leave other parts of the baby in the womb. 
So you got to reassemble the baby to make sure you got everything. And if not, you got to keep searching around and with, you know, until you can get everything that's in there in the uterus. And that's how an abortion happens, at least in the second trimester of abortion. Then you have partial birth abortion. You have the selling of baby body parts, which was made popular last year through some videos, thankfully. You have pills and other methods of destroying conception. The point here is that killing or aborting babies is murder. And so we must not be okay with that. Now, that's the first and big point. We just need to get that. Now, let me just move here with three other things to say about it, and then we'll close. Our problem, here's our problem. Our problem is that we are hypocritical. Okay, if you're not a Christian, you're saying, you know why I would never be a Christian? Because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. They're hypocrites. And that's why I wouldn't be a Christian. And let me just say, if you're not a Christian, I understand that. I don't disagree with you, even in my own life. As sinners, every time a Christian sins, they are acting inconsistent with their profession. And I sin every day. Everyone sins every day. I'm not, I'm not trying to make an excuse for hypocrisy. I'm admitting it. And I want to just say, if you're not a Christian, that we want to say sorry and we want to apologize and repent for any hypocrisy that we're made aware of. Here's some of our hypocrisy. We have gotten abortions. We Christians have gotten abortions. We have often paid for them. We have even suggested or sought to persuade others to get one. Sometimes we've done it more forcefully and, and straightforwardly. Other times, we've been more kind of Subtle with it, because we don't want to really say it out outright, but we've said it in so many words. Well, what are you going to do? You know, implying. We, and not only have we done that, we have been cowardly in our silence when others were thinking about it. It's not my place to say. It's not my place to say. If someone, if you saw a parent with a gun about to shoot their baby, born baby, would you say, it's not my Place to say, who am I? That's between father and son or mother and son. Who am I to say that a mom can't shoot their baby? Does, does a gun make it worse? I mean, does that help? You know, that, that you know, so we, we've been cowardly in our silence. We've been focused on rules. Don't murder. Here's another way we've, we've failed. We've been so strong on do not murder that we have failed to show love to people who are struggling with this question. So much so that when they actually get pregnant, they're scared to talk to us. Because if they talk to us, we're going to slam them with the Bible. And even in that way, we have failed to make them encounter Christ through us, right? Jesus was compassionate. He was firm, but he was compassionate and loving. Sinners ate with him because he was loving, even though he did not hold back the truth. And that's just regarding abortion where our hypocrisy is. But we could go even deeper than that. Two more passages here. Matthew 5. Go to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. Matthew 5, 21 says this. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, our ancestors, do not murder or thou shalt not kill. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus says, but I tell you, everyone who is what? Angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother fool will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. So it's not apparently just murder, according to Jesus, to kill someone. But if you are sinfully angry with someone, not righteously angry, sinfully self-centeredly angry with someone, selfishly angry with someone, if you've ever called someone a moron, or a fool, or things worse than that, in anger, you are guilty in your heart of murder. Who can stand? Who here is not guilty? Please don't raise your hand because we will all know that that's not true. We're guilty. At least in our hearts, right? We're guilty of murder in our hearts. So in one sense, who are we to tell other people not to murder when we ourselves have murdered in our hearts? 
First John 3, 12 through 15 says much of the same. It says this, Unlike Cain, who was evil of the evil one and murdered his brother, why did Cain murder his brother? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Now listen to this. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. You hear what God is saying in 1 John chapter 3? If you hate your brother, you're guilty of what? Murder. And, and we classify hatred as passionate emotional anger. And so we excuse our less passionate hatred. But less passionate hatred is still hatred. Indifference and bitterness is still hatred. Just because it's calm on your face doesn't make it less hateful. And therefore, we're guilty, again, of murder in our hearts. The spirit and seed of murder resides in us all when we are not loving and warm towards fellow humans. So, we're guilty. That's my point. Point number two is we're guilty, even ourselves. One more thing to think, I mean, another question to think about this. What would you do? Now, go back to 1944. 1944, and pretend you were living in Nazi Germany. You're a German citizen. You're a Christian. You believe the Bible. You're a member of a church. You're working the same job or you're retired if you're retired or you're in school if you're in school. Imagine that you're Nazi Germany as a Christian and there's a concentration camp three miles from where you live. What would you do? What would you do? You know there's a concentration camp three miles from where you live. You know that Jews are being killed. Your Jewish neighbors who used to live next door to you are there being killed and experimented on. They're being systematically executed and experimented on. And you know that, and it's three miles away. What would you do? Think about it for a second. Just think of one or two things you would do. I want you to have those two things in your mind. And then I want to give you your answer, your actual answer. You know what you would do? You would do, and what I would do, I'll say this about myself too, we would do exactly what we're doing today about abortion if we know that abortion is murder. So whatever you thought you would do, that's not necessarily what you would do. You would do what you're actually doing, I think. That's my guess. We would probably do what we're doing now because if you've known... Now, maybe you don't know abortion's murder and you just found out today. Okay. For those of you who've known, like I've known, what we would have done in Nazi Germany is what we're doing today because we're doing it today. And it's happening. 1.4 million babies a year being killed. Down the street from where we live, right? You just go on Google. You can find all the abortion clinics all over the place. And they're everywhere in Los Angeles County. And it's happening every day. Every 20 seconds, a child is being aborted in the United States. We don't have to imagine what we would do. We know what we would do. And what would I do? Let me just convict myself here. Well, that means I'll preach about it once a year. Okay, if I was in Nazi Germany, I'll preach about don't kill Jews once a year. It means I'll pray about it every once in a while in my life. For me, that means I would go to a pro... I went to one protest this year. So I'd go to one protest in Nazi Germany. I would have a few conversations here and there when I, when I remembered it. I would share a few videos on Facebook. Don't kill Jews. Is that all I would do? That's all I did. These babies are being slaughtered every day for the sake of convenience. And often with the parents being ignorant to what they're doing, unaware of what they're actually doing. And we are numb to our historical moment. You know, I, I'm convinced that my great, my, my son's great grandchildren, so take that five generations down, right? My son's great grandchildren will look back on, on my generation with horror and say, What did our parents do? This really happened? They were killing 1.4 million babies every year? What were they doing? Don't you think about that with slavery? Where was the church during slavery in America? Where was the church in Nazi Germany? Where was, where's the church today? Now, I don't want to be so hard. There are, there are Christians, and some of you have done a lot more than I have done. And there are a lot of Christians doing a lot of things. But the point here is that we haven't... Largely, we're guilty. In our own hearts and in our own practice, we have been negligent or minimalistic 
in our action. So that's the bad news. We know what we want to do. We want to stop this. We're guilty. So what do we do? Well, there's someone who can help us. Who's that? Jesus Christ, right? John 10, verse 10 and 11 say this. A thief comes in only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what for his sheep? Lays down his life for his sheep. There is someone who's never murdered. There is someone who gives his life to to protect life. There is someone who gave his life to give life. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Now, they attempted to kill Jesus as a baby in Matthew chapter 2. Herod tried to kill Jesus, and he failed. They attempted to kill Jesus in Matthew 27, and they succeeded. They murdered Jesus. He was innocent of the charges, and yet they killed him as an adult. They succeeded in their plan to execute Jesus. And yet, the murder of Jesus was the victory of God. When Jesus died on the cross, yes, his enemies got their mission accomplished, and yet at the very same time, God got his mission accomplished. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Jesus Christ died on the cross, not just because he was executed by enemies, but he was obedient to his Father's will. Drink the cup. Drink the cup of wrath. Drink the cup of judgment. Take on the death of all the sinners who would ever believe from every tongue, nation, and language. Die for their sins. Rise from the dead. So that all of these murderers, all of these haters, all of these passive, cowardly humans who are clutching their convenience and not taking risks for others, who deserve death because they've enabled death, Die for them to give them life and forgiveness and bring them to me, my son. Die for their sins and bring them to me that I might give them forgiveness and a relationship with me and give them my Holy Spirit and give them life that they might have it more abundantly. That they might themselves take up their cross and die for the good of others, in evangelism and in speaking up for the unborn and in opposing racism, as we talked about last week, that they would take risks and be uncomfortable and be inconvenienced because they already have life. They'll let goods and kindred go, like I said, as we prayed. Their mortal life will soul, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Jesus died for us. If you're not a Christian, there's good news this morning. God can forgive your sins. God can give you life this morning. I just memorized this morning. Here's my memory verse for this morning. For every Romans 10, 13 to 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him? They have not believed it. Well, let me let me get to the first part, then I'll get to the second part with us Christians. For you non-Christians, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead such that if you will repent from your sins and call out to Jesus to save you today, He will save you from your sins. He will give you life. He will give you forgiveness. He will give you His Holy Spirit and He will empower you now to live life more abundantly. Not peacefully always. You'll get in trouble. You start obeying God, you'll get in trouble. In my devotions this morning, Psalm 119, there was a verse, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said something like, God, show me your ways and I will walk fully in them. And I thought, man, that's a risky prayer. Show me what to do, God, and I will do everything you say. That means people will not like you. People will oppose you. People will attack you. People will slander you and discourage you and tear you down. And yet, if Jesus tells you to walk in that way, and he gave you his Holy Spirit, then guess what? Walk in that way. Right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him and they have not believed in? How will they believe in him without hearing about him? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how blessed are the feet of those 
who announce the gospel of good things. So Christians, share the gospel. Christians, you have been empowered to go out and be the body of Christ in our neighborhood, in our streets, in our city. We are guilty as Christians, we can be forgiven. We are guilty as Christians, we have been forgiven, and we have been empowered and resourced, and we will resource each other to do this. And so, that's point number three, someone can help us. And point number four, now because of Christ, we can make a difference. What do we need to be? I'll just close with application, we're done. We need to be a child-loving church, where everyone encounters Jesus. Right? That was the vision I laid out two, two weeks ago. We want to be a church where everyone encounters who? Jesus. That's what we want to be. We want to be a people that when people come, whether it's singing or conversation or preaching or membership class or Sunday school or us on the street, we want to be a people where everyone encounters Jesus in everything we are because we are the body of Christ, right? We're His body. So when people come and hang out with us or interact with us, they should be interacting with Jesus through us. That's also true for Christians. And so, so one of the ways we're going to be like Jesus is to be child-loving. Because didn't Jesus love children? Yeah, right? We talked about that in Mark chapter 10. Let the children come to me. Stop preventing them. Jesus loves children. And so we need to be child-loving for children out of the womb and children in the womb. So how are we going to do this? We need to take the long view. This is not a sprint. I'm not telling you to get all crazy for the next week or two and just... You know, I'm going to quit my job. And I'm just, no, hold on. Don't quit your job. You need to work. You need to pay the bills so that you can do the long-term, long-term child-loving thing. Okay? We need to take the long view. We, this is a marathon. So let's keep attacking. That's a, a strategic. Let's keep attacking the mindset. Not people. Let's attack the mindset of the world and how they think about abortion. How do you attack a mindset? By speaking. By sharing ideas, by asking questions, listening to people, and then sharing truth. By learning ourselves. So, let's, let's not be passive. Let's be patient. Let's not be cynical with inaction. This has been going on since 1973. What can I do to change things? If enough people think that way, guess what's going to happen? Nothing, right? Do something. Forget cynical inaction. Go for sustained action. I have here, let me give you one short application, and I'll give you some, some suggestions. I want some of you, I left it here uh, intentionally in front. Right here, I have a stack of 21 sheets of paper. And on the sheet of paper, there are 14 things you can do to help unborn babies and their mothers. I only made 21. I want you to actually walk up here after we close in prayer and pick one up here in the front. As a, as a statement of... I could have put these in your bulletin, right? I want it as a statement of your action that you will think about what to do. If you're on our church email list, if you're not on our church email list, get on our church email list. I'm talking to the members here. And if you're not a member, we can have a list for you too if you want to stay in touch. But for the members of our church, I don't want to spam you. You need to actually willingly consent for me to put you on an email Google group. If you do, what I sent out this morning was 50 things you can do. To help unborn babies and their mothers. All I'm at, well, not all I'm asking you to do. I'm telling you, read it. Take three minutes and read the whole list. And it will spark ideas. You're saying, well, what can I do? I can't preach on a Sunday. I, what am I going to do? I can't quit my job. You don't have to do that. There are 50 things you could do there. So, so read over that list. Let me give you a few now and then I'll pray. Learn as much as you can about abortion. Go to abort73.com or just Google pro-life website. And look up and learn about abortion. Watch a video explaining the process of abortion. Look at pictures of aborted babies. That's gruesome. It's violent. It's bloody. It's sad. I looked at them again last night, as I do every year, preparing for a sermon like this. And I was shocked, not by the pictures, I was shocked at how, at, at how numb I became over a whole year of not seeing it. I was so shocked looking at it that I thought, I haven't looked at these for a whole year. How quickly I forget. I'm going to preach this sermon. Guess what I'm doing next week? What am I going to do here? Preach another sermon on something else, right? And I'll be 52 more weeks until next year's Sanctity of Life Sunday. What I want to tell you is look at pictures. They're gross. They're gruesome. 
but you need to see what's going on. You know what they did in Nazi Germany after they liberated Germany? You know what they did to all the neighbors around the concentration camps? They forced them to walk through and see their neighbors. They forced them to look at the piles of bodies. You know why? They want to say, look at what happened. This, never, this, this must never happen again. You need to not just sanitize your mind with this. You need, to, you need to see pictures of it. And wisely show your children even. I showed my son just on the back of this Why Pro-Life book. It's a picture right here of, a, of an arm sticking out of a womb. He's like, what's that? It's a bloody arm of a baby that's being aborted. Look at pictures and be aware of what's going on. And then last thing I'll say, read the list. But last thing I'll say is, make it a regular prayer item. Pray about it regularly. Not just once in a while. Make it every Monday. Make every Monday, I'm going to pray for pro-life causes or make it every every day even if on sunday night you should come to prayer meeting if you're not here if you are here prayer meeting tonight and it's not on the list and i say are there any prayer requests what should you say i got one let's pray against the abortion culture and the killing of babies the slaughtering of babies in our culture and let's pray for our churches to wisely act okay read this paper read the email pray and act let's pray Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Apart from him, there is no life. Lord, we don't want to be a a, a political church. We don't want to be primarily a social action church, but we do want to love our neighbors. And that means sacrifice. That means action. And we don't want to do it leaving the gospel behind. We want people to live so that they could hear the gospel. We want mothers to know that there's forgiveness after abortion. We want those before abortion to know that we are Christians who will give money and sacrifice to make sure that children are cared for. We have members of this church who foster kids. We have members of this church who want to adopt kids. Help us, Lord, speak and be the body of Christ in this world. This is a dark day, Father. And these are dark moments. And we will look back with horror at what has gone on in these years of our lifetime. And maybe even some regret on what we did not do. Help us, Father, to not go crazy in the sense of unsustained frenzy of action. But save us, Lord Jesus, from being passive. Save us from being cynical. Save us from inaction and silence. Move in us individually and together. Help us to know that we're not doing this alone, but we're doing this as Christians with Jesus Christ in us and with fellow church members beside us. And help us to love the children we already have in this church and those you're adding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.